0: So, brothers and sisters, again, we turn to chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. The passage is verses 1 through 11. Reading from the English Standard
1: Version translation. John writes,
0: After this I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments For you created all things,
1: and by your will they existed and were created.
0: Let's pray. Our Father, we come to this text once again, and we know that Christ has revealed these things to us. And we would pray for your Holy Spirit to be the one enabling us to understand all that is spoken, all that is written, all that is said to us. Our Father, our desire here is not to somehow uh, probe uh, mysteries that are beyond what we should ever look into. Our desire, Father, is to learn what Christ is teaching us about you and what this means for us in terms of our lives.
1: So we pray for the right kind of hearts to listen. We pray for minds that would have discernment. We pray
0: that you would give us an aptitude for obedience, that we might gladly embrace truth and live for you, and that we might even be those who truly, deeply understand that we have been redeemed,
1: that we would glorify the living God and enjoy him forever. These things we pray in Christ's name, amen. So uh, I want to begin with the word apocalypse. Um, In our common understanding
0: of that term, uh, we think of it as the complete and final destruction of the world. Or there's a lesser meaning. Apocalypse can mean a cataclysmic, destructive event on a catastrophic scale. The kind of thing that Greta Thornburg sort of worries about. Uh, that might be the end of the world too. Now we have this idea and this kind of usage uh, in in the English language because of the influence of the Book of Revelation. Uh, the Christian tradition has interpreted this book as giving us the final destruction of the world at the end of human history. But this meaning of the word apocalypse is actually quite a bit removed from the Greek meaning. Of this same word, apocalypsis. Uh, The word apocalypsis in the original simply means something that is unveiled, something that is disclosed, something that is revealed. So the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, is essentially an unveiling, a revealing, a disclosure by Jesus Christ to his apostle John. And through John's writing it down, it became a disclosure to the New Testament church and then onward to us. And so when we come to chapter four and chapter five, we have an unveiling of the throne room of God. It's a disclosure that we we cannot see from our vantage point here upon the earth. What Jesus unveils here in chapter four in particular is a vision of God being worshiped in heaven a vision that Jesus desires us, his people, to see, but also to follow and also to be informed by
1: with respect to our worship so that our worship would be done here on earth as it is in heaven.
0: So what has been written down has been written for our instruction. And what is written down is to keep our focus on this main Theme of why God sent his Son into the world, namely that God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That is why we've said repeatedly during this series that the goal of redemption is restoration to worship. It is a restoration of our calling to be God centered, to live coram deo, that is, to live in the presence of God, as those who will glorify God and enjoy him forever. So, This passage is about the God that Jesus reveals and how we must be and behave in the presence of God. This passage points to the goal of redemption as the restoration of the worship of the true and living God in whose presence reverence is required, smallness is necessary, and Silence is impossible. In this regard, then, Jesus reveals in this passage three facets of worship that we should observe, and then three normative practices that we should apply to our worship. Again, reverence
1: is required. Smallness is necessary. Silence is impossible.
0: and. As we go through this chapter, I want us to consider each of these, expand somewhat upon the observations we will make in terms of what we should aim for in our own calling and practice of those who are redeemed to worship the true and living God. Again, this passage points to the goal of redemption. It is the restoration of the worship of the true and living God and whose presence reverence is required smallness is
1: necessary and silence is impossible
0: now with respect to this first idea reverence reverence that is necessary we should ask ourselves what reverence means and then observe how we see it in this passage in the, in the first place reverence is simply a form of respect um, it's a heightened form of respect But it's essentially the kind of respect that rightly understands the status of the person in whose presence we are. So the greater the person, the greater that respect or reverence. Now, in the days of monarchies, uh, this was culturally well understood. You know, there were kings and queens and lords and ladies, all sorts of royalty. Everyone with a royal title was supposed to be accorded a higher form a higher degree of respect than ordinary private citizens. So people of this sort, that is, kings and queens especially, would be given exalted titles, things like your majesty, your highness, your lordship, your ladyship, your excellency. And in the public context of their duties, they would be given special respect, serious respect, an attitude of reverence. Now, the closest some of of us might ever come to this kind of thing in our very democratized culture is if we've ever had to go into a courtroom, if we've ever served on a jury. Uh, If you have, we've had the experience of the courtroom protocol. Uh, That's designed to impress upon everyone the serious nature of what happens there, and therefore the serious respect that must be given to it. So attorneys are always there in their best suits, Sheriffs and bailiffs show up in their uniforms along with their sidearms. And the judge, of course, is always wearing his judicial robe. Now, when the judge comes in, the bailiff announces this. He commands everyone to rise uh, until the judge is seated. Then he allows everyone to sit. All of this is a form of reverence, it rightly understands the status of the person. In our presence or we ought to reverse this we ought to say that uh it is we understand in whose presence we actually are and in every courtroom the most important person happens to be the judge all reverence to be given to the judge now secondly though reverence is also a theological idea in fact it's a a crucially central theological idea it's 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 essentially uh, the idea that the highest possible kind of respect that we would associate with God is captured by this word, reverence. Reverence is the attitude that we must have toward God. This is grounded in a number of Old Testament passages, uh, the first of which would be Exodus 3. A familiar story. Uh, Moses is uh, a shepherd uh, for the sake of his father-in-law, Jethro. He's been out in the wilderness. Uh, This is toward the end of the 40 years that he's been away from Egypt, and he comes to the west side of the wilderness. He comes to Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai, and he sees the burning bush, the burning bush that is not consumed. And so we read in Exodus 3, verses 4 through 6, these words. When the Lord saw that... He, Moses, turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. This is reverence. Moses had the profound experience of being in the presence of God. Uh, He was commanded and therefore immediately removed his sandals because the ground was holy. And then Moses hid his face because he was afraid to gaze upon God. The presence of God evoked in Moses this deep, sense of reverence or think about isaiah chapter 6 it's it's a passage we've looked at many times uh there uh in the year that king uzziah died uh, isaiah sees the lord high and lifted up uh seated upon his throne and he sees and hears the angels calling to one another holy 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah responds to this expression of the holiness of God, this vision of God, high and lifted up. And he responds this way. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. Uh, The Hebrew there literally means I am undone or actually disintegrated, meaning metaphorically, but disintegrated. For I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The reaction of Isaiah is reverence. Now, in this
1: chapter, here is how Jesus unveils reverence for God. The four living creatures, verse 8, are saying, holy,
0: holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. It's the theme of God's holiness. That's the center of God's worthiness to be worshipped. And the proper response to the holiness of God is reverence. We see this further in verse 10, the 24 elders. What is their response? They fall down before the throne of God. They worship him. And most significantly, they cast their own crowns before the throne as they proclaim the worthiness of God to receive all glory, all honor, all power as the sovereign
1: creator. Reverence, then, is the heightened, incredibly heightened, respectful reaction
0: to the greatness of God's presence. It is to recognize how great God is
1: and to behave properly, which is to
0: fall down before God. And this act of the 24 elders casting down their golden crowns before God's throne is to say, we submit all that we are and all of
1: our authority to you. This is reverence.
0: It is the most profound recognition and respect for who God is in all of his glorious greatness.
1: Now, if we're going to call what we do worship, then there must be reverence. Reverence is required. Jesus is
0: unveiling the biblical truth. That in the presence of God, where worship must happen, reverence
1: is required. Now, this
0: has a great deal of meaning in my own life personally. Because I've often been asked to comment on my 13 years of, of teaching at Bakersfield Christian High School. And, and here's what I say in all truthfulness. Overall, a very good school. Overall, the very best young people in all of Kern County. Overall, wonderful colleagues. Overall, the best teachers I ever could have asked for to work with in the Bible department. And then people
1: ask, why did you leave? And the answer is this. In 2016, in January, I was standing at the end of chapel and I was praying. God, I don't think I can endure another year of chapel services. Because what was going on in my heart was this. For Lord, if we're going to call what we do worship, there must be reverence. Reverence is required.
0: But it was a constant concern and challenge within the Bible department that we could never change the culture of chapel services. When one of our department, Bible department teachers, was in charge
1: of chapel, we had reverence. We worked toward reverence. But when the responsibility for chapel was placed elsewhere, reverence, in so many ways, and for the most part, disappeared. There was this controlling
0: idea when a member of the Bible department was not in charge of chapel. There was this controlling idea. We need to have chapels
1: that students enjoy. That's a very different idea than we need to have chapels that show reverence to God. And we need to keep teaching students that God is to be reverenced. Now, in defense of Bakersfield Christian High School. The chapels there simply reflected the common idea of worship that
0: dominates American evangelical culture, which is not the idea of reference. Rather, it is audience-centered. What did I get out of worship
1: today? Now, in illustrating this, it's not to, uh, in any way, look at this and say, Well, yes. No, actually, it's to hear this and to take the concern back to us. That is to say, we need to be committed to what is revealed to us by Jesus. That in the presence of God, where worship must happen, reverence is required. This attitude must exist within our hearts. We must have the deepest respect for God's presence within us. Second facet of worship that we see from this passage, smallness is necessary.
0: There are two kinds of smallness that I want to distinguish the first, the wrong kind, and then the other, the proper kind that I see indicated in this passage. First, Cosmos, the early 1980s PBS series by Carl Sagan, where this tagline was always given in association with its broadcasting. The cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. Now, one of the things you learn from that series and from the perspective of modern cosmology science is the vast size of the cosmos and the vast age of the cosmos. Currently, the observable universe would be like a sphere with a diameter of about 93 billion light years, where each light year has 5.9 trillion miles. Now, that's unbelievably, inconceivably huge. And the age is reckoned at roughly 14 billion years old. Now, such sizes are used to support the idea that we human beings are very, very small items in this vast cosmos. And therefore, we are very, very insignificant. With respect to the cosmos, we are so very tiny. Our lives are so very short that we essentially do not matter at all. This view of smallness leads again and again to the conclusion of human insignificance. No matter what we may think of ourselves, no matter what we may think of the human race, if Carl Sagan is correct, If the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be, then we are truly so very small that it is to the point of utter insignificance. If you believe this view of the cosmos, there is no way to prop up your life and to make your life truly matter, to make it other than being actually insignificant. 2,500 years of thinking from this perspective, from the best minds of the philosophers and from the best minds of the scientists, has made this abundantly clear. But there is this second kind of smallness, a necessary kind of smallness that is revealed to us in this passage. And this is the smallness that is necessary to worship God
1: rightly this kind of smallness is that which is essentially humility look at verse 11 worthy are you our lord and god
0: to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created I want you to think similar thoughts suggested by the series Cosmos, but not the same thoughts. Think about how vast the Cosmos is, and then grasp properly
1: that God created it
0: all. And in light of how vast is God's creation, we are truly, truly very small. But we are not insignificant. There is an important passage in the Old Testament, of the Book of Isaiah, that is actually the background for what we read here in Revelation 4:11. This passage is Isaiah chapter 40. We can begin at, verses, at verse 21 and following, where God speaks to Isaiah and says, "This. Do you not know?" Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is God who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. There's the smallness. There's the smallness of human beings. God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness, there's smallness once again. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely have has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Then verse 25,
1: to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Which is to say,
0: look at this vast cosmos. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. This is revelation four eleven the God who created all things, and by His will they have existed and were created. Then God goes on to say to his people that they must not see their smallness as insignificance so Isaiah forty verse twenty seven where God says, "What do you say, O Jacob, and speak O Israel, My way is." Hidden from the Lord. And my right is disregarded by my God. That is to say, God's people were thinking they were both small and insignificant. And not even noticed or regarded by God. So God responds in verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. God is saying, it is right that you see yourself as small. It is a necessary perspective. You are a tiny creature that God has created, and you must humbly see yourself this way. But you are so mistaken. If you think that because you are small, you do not matter. You are so mistaken. If you think you are small. And God does not take note of your life. Rather, the Lord God who created all of the starry host, who calls each and every one of those stars by name, this same one is the Lord who will renew the strength of everyone who trusts and waits upon him. Now, what Jesus is revealing about the presence of God and our worship of him is that we must necessarily reckon ourselves as very small, humble creations who exist not by chance or the indifference of the cosmos, but because God himself has chosen to create
1: us and to redeem us. We are small
0: because God has made us. We matter because God has made us to matter. And he has made us for himself. In in view of how immense and big God is, we must necessarily be small and humble. We must necessarily see ourselves as small and humble. Yet, we must also see ourselves as eternally significant as those redeemed and bought by the
1: blood of God's Son. To worship him. And then we have a third facet of worship. Silence is impossible.
0: We see this in the text in verses 8 and 9. In verse 8 we read that the four living creatures never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. In the presence of God, they give ceaseless praise. And along with the four living creatures, verse 9 tells us that whenever, that is, whenever the four living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, which is all of the time, since they're giving ceaseless praise, the 24 elders are falling down and giving their praise to God. Likewise, as Constantly, unceasingly, as the four living creatures, the the sense of things is this: it just doesn't seem possible that these heavenly beings in the presence of God could keep silent. Think about what Jesus said on Palm Sunday, as he's riding down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. Luke chapter. 19, verses 37 to 40, we read that the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you. If these were silent, the very stones would cry out.
1: Silence, in essence Jesus was saying, was impossible on this occasion.
0: And that's also the point of what's going on within this vision and scene of God upon his throne being worshipped. In the presence of the God who's worthy to be worshipped, to whom the angels sang at the birth of Christ, glory to God in the highest. In the presence of God, worship arises, praise is evoked, and doxology is inevitable. It is the natural bent of the heavenly citizenship to be joyful always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks
1: in all circumstances. Silence is impossible unless it is ordained or commanded by God himself. And
0: we do have such silence commanded in Scripture. For instance, we can read Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Or Habakkuk 2.20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Or Zechariah 2.13, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Or Revelation 8.1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was
1: silence in heaven for about half an hour.
0: Now, in these cases, where silence in God's presence is commanded, the context is about God's impending or intended judgment. The silence is called for as a prelude to God's judicial action. The people of God must silence their complaints and doubts that God will vindicate his people and bring his holy wrath upon his enemies. For the prayers of the saints have arisen before God, and God is about to act. So, praise is inevitable, and silence is impossible, unless it is ordered to be so by God as a pregnant pause, as a prelude
1: to divine judgment. Now, contrast that perspective and truth. What is so much the case here below? Here in our lives, in our hearts, silence is the norm. Praise mostly happens when it's required or commanded or scheduled.
0: What I mean this is observational about our lives as believers. We live too easily without worship. We live so easily without our thoughts being filled with the presence of God. I say this not to chide us
1: or to guilt us, rather to remind us of our need for Christ. In contrast to the
0: citizenship of heaven, We have no natural bent toward worshiping God. What is most broken about us by the fall, our fallen Adam, is that we have this incurvatus. It's a Latin term. St. Augustine used it to describe how we are curved inward upon ourselves rather than outward toward God. We are bent inward and we cannot in our own power, turn to God to be those who worship him as we ought. Which is
1: to say, we are not easily reverent. We do not value being small and humble
0: in the presence of God. And we find silence all too possible when God's praises should be continually on our
1: lips. So we need Christ. We need his
0: work on the cross to redeem us and to change us so that we will live to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable in God's sight as our spiritual service of worship. We need the grace of the gospel to work in us what is pleasing to
1: God. Now, to conclude, turn your thoughts the Lord's Prayer, the prayer he taught
0: his disciples to pray. And I want us to see the connection between how Jesus taught us to pray and what we see in this passage. First,
1: we pray in the Lord's Prayer to our Father who is in heaven, the one who is seated upon his throne, the sovereign King and Creator of all things. Then, secondly, We are to pray that his name would be hallowed. It's the
0: leading point in all worship to recognize and express the fact that God is the holy, holy, holy God. This is his essential nature. Thirdly, we are to pray for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, where there is full and true reverence for God, where those who worship God know that they are small and that God is infinitely great, and where it is impossible to be silent, for in God's presence there is ceaseless praise, we are to pray that are in our own lives in the church that is the body of Christ, that God's will would be done here on earth, that we would be those whose worship would be joyful always, whose prayers would be unceasing, and whose thanksgiving would be at all times, in all circumstances, that we would be able to say to one another, Oh, magnify the Lord with me,
1: and let us exalt his name together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would do your work with us, to us,
0: in us. That the reason you sent your son into this world, motivated as you were seeking those who would worship you in spirit and in truth, that that work and mission of Christ would be fulfilled in us. That you would break
1: our natural bent in which we are curved in upon ourselves and replace it almighty god with a proper bent toward you that we here and now still citizens upon this earth would do your will the will of worship As it is in heaven. And this we pray. In order that you would be lifted up and glorified in our lives. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.